Well, having finished my exposition of the book of Philippians last week, I want to go back to the subject I preached on two weeks ago, two Lord's Days ago, on Father's Day. That sermon was entitled, A Call for Men to Sexual Purity, from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. And I've decided to preach now a series of several sermons directed to men. This series could simply be entitled, Godly Men, or The Call for Men to Be Godly. And in this series, I want to address some of the common temptations that men face and the sins that men wrestle with and unfortunately commit. First on the list of those subjects is sexual purity. In order for men to be godly men, they must be sexually pure men, holding marriage in honor and keeping the marriage bed undefiled, as it says in Hebrews 13, verse 4. And so in this series, Godly Men, we begin with a call for men to be sexually pure. Now let me just pause here for a moment and just say as one of your pastors that these sermons are not directed to any specific person or persons in this church. I am speaking to men, all the men in this church. I've been pastoring and preaching for over 25 years now, and in the course of that pastoring and preaching, I'm well acquainted from that role in helping and seeking to disciple men in this particular area. I have preached on, taught on these things. There will be nothing new that I will say that I've not already said in some context before, either specifically on this subject or in various passages as I preach through books of the Bible. So again, I want to emphasize it is not directed toward any person or persons. It is not uncommon through my 25 plus years of preaching that when I preach a sermon, someone might come to me and say, that sermon seemed to be directed to me. And I'll often say that sermon was directed to all of us. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's relevant. I don't make it relevant if it's proclaimed and preached faithfully, then it is relevant. And so the Holy Spirit's ministry and work is to take the proclamation of the Word and to instruct us, to reprove us and convict us, to correct us and train us in righteousness. So if these things seem to be, as some among us will sometimes say, if the word seems to be coming down your street, it's not because I'm intending specifically towards specific people for that to be the case. Again, I could show you sermons and teaching lessons from years past with these very same principles, this very same passage. And always remember, sometimes we're a little self-centered when it comes to these things, and we think too highly of ourselves than we ought to think in this sense. Pastor or the pastors are directing this toward me. No, there may very well be ten other men struggling with the particular area that you are. 
So don't think I'm the only one in the congregation. This is a body of believers we've called, been called to shepherd faithfully. And if we're doing so, it, it will seem at times that it's directed to you. But that's not because we are seeking to do that. It's just the Word of God. Now, I am directing this particularly toward men in this church. That is my intention because, as I've said before, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. We could then say as the men go in a local church, so goes the church. Godly men is what we need to be praying for in this church and seeking to be as men in this church. And godly men are sexually pure men, period. Godly men are sexually pure men. And we must strive for and seek sexual purity by the grace of God. Now, as I mentioned two weeks ago on Father's Day, I preached on 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8. I'm not going to review what I preached on that day, but from time to time I'll be referring back to some of the truths and principles of purity that we saw in that passage. So for this week and probably a couple of weeks after this, a couple of sermons, in order to stir us up to purity, I want us to consider two examples in Scripture. One is a bad example. The other is a good and godly example. The bad example is from the life of a man who otherwise was a godly man. Indeed, a man after God's own heart. His name was King David, and his sin is recorded in Scripture in 2 Samuel 11. Turn there with me, 2 Samuel 11. While you turn there to 2 Samuel 11, the good and godly example that we'll look at in a couple of sermons away from today, is from a man who had undergone great trials in his life and who was living in an ungodly society. And we'll see in his life that in the midst of great trials and in an ungodly society, we can be godly, pure men. And when faced with a particularly strong temptation to sexual sin, this man's response was, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? That good and godly example was Joseph. And we will see his godliness in Genesis 39. But today we want to look at the bad example of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It is helpful for us to see examples in the Bible, both good and bad, to instruct us and to warn us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example. They're referring to Israel, but we could say we know this is true throughout the scriptures. It's given to us for a purpose. And it says, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Second Samuel 11 is a part of those sacred scriptures. 
So this morning, let's consider an example of the danger of sexual immorality by considering a particular event in the life of King David. 2 Samuel 11 records for us a very sad event. It is in this chapter that we read of the sin of King David with Bathsheba. Follow along as I read the first five verses of 2 Samuel 11. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now we're going to look at the rest of this chapter and into chapter 12 next week, but I want us to focus on these first five verses This morning, these verses record King David's sin. I want you to notice, first of all, the occasion for David's sin. The occasion for David's sin. Verse 1, then it happened in the spring that at the time when kings go out to battle. So there is this time David has sent out his servants. He's sent out Joab and his armies to battle against the sons of Ammon. And they were at work doing that. But it tells us in verse 1, but David stayed at Jerusalem. I believe that's recorded for us there because David himself should have been at battle. However, instead, he, instead of fulfilling his responsibility as king, he finds himself idle. You've heard the saying, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Sexual sin often occurs at a time when we should be giving our attention to our God-given responsibilities. But instead we're not. We're idle or aimless. Our neglect of those things God has called us to do and to be places us in a very vulnerable place and position. Instead of doing what we should be doing, we're idle, we're wasting time. For example, you should be spending time with your family. Instead, you're watching idly the television. You should be working, but instead you're talking to a woman at work. You should be teaching your children, but applying this to ladies, instead you're watching daytime TV shows. 
You should be sleeping. That's one of the responsibilities we have. Take care of our bodies by sleeping. Instead, you're on the internet. The internet and social media is sometimes, if not often, often nothing more than a dwelling place for an idle mind. Beware of being idle. Beware of having an idle mind. Beware of aimlessness in the use of your time. Always be asking, what is the will of God for my life? What responsibilities have I been given? Am I fulfilling those responsibilities? Because like King David, who should have been out to battle with his armies, instead he's idle and not fulfilling what he should have been fulfilling as a king. Instead of being idle and aimless, we need to walk and live carefully. Ephesians 5, 15-17 says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I'm going to be looking at that passage of Scripture in the future when we talk about spiritually industrious men Men who are understanding the days we live in, understanding that the days are evil. And instead of walking idly and aimlessly, we're seeking to make the most of our time and walk wisely. And to do that, it says in Ephesians 5.17, we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. That is, not a, some sort of wild goose chase on some mysterious will that God might, quote-unquote, have for your life. No, it means understand what the revealed will of God is in Scripture for your life. Know your vocations, so to speak, your holy callings, your responsibilities before God. And that will guard you from being idle and aimless, which will make you vulnerable to all kinds of sin, and sexual sin in particular. Commenting on David's sin, one person has said this, David thus shows us that omission usually precedes commission. Now you understand the difference between sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission are things that are the will of God that we should be doing, but we're not doing them, we're omitting those things. They're sins of omission And then there are sins of commission. God has said you shall not do this, but we violate that and we commit sins, sins of commission, violating what God has prohibited. So this person says David thus shows us that omission, not doing what God has called you to do, what you know to be the revealed will of God, usually precedes sins of commission goes on to say one of the best ways for us to guard against the temptation to sin is to keep busy in the work to which God has called us. Our lives should be devoted to faithfulness in all our callings, committing ourselves to the blessing of others and useful service to the Lord. In this way, making ourselves unavailable for the devil's advances. One of the best ways, he goes on to say, 
To remain faithful in marriage, for instance, is to zealously pursue a close, loving companionship with our spouses. We can likewise protect ourselves against an avarice love of money by generously giving to the church and the needs of others. So again, as we're using our money as God has prescribed, remember in Philippians 4, we talked about that, then it guards us from the love of money. But if we omit that that we know the will of God is, then we can very easily go down the path of sins of commission. But the writer goes on to say, it is especially important for Christians to maintain the duties of their discipleship to Christ, including regular involvement in a faithful church, daily Bible reading, and frequent prayer. In contrast to this, David attended to his desires rather than his duties. John Calvin comments, By thus sparing himself and staying in his house in order to be at his ease, he threw himself into the net of Satan, and one evil fed another. Men, beware of idleness and aimlessness and not fulfilling your God-given responsibilities. It is often a time of great spiritual danger. Look at verse 2. It goes on to say, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. Beware of times when you're weak. We don't know why David arose from his bed. Maybe he was having a sleepless night. We don't know. There's, there's nothing wrong with awakening from sleep in the middle of the night. But we do need to be particularly aware of those times, especially at night. Beware of times when you're weak, when you're sleepy and browsing the internet. These particular times and circumstances in your life may be when you're the weakest, when you're not thinking the most clearly. And here David awakens from his sleep, he rises from his bed in the night. There are certain circumstances and times that we need to be aware of our weakness. You remember in 1 Thessalonians 4... It says that we're to know how to control our own vessels, our own bodies in sanctification and honor. And I applied that by saying we need to know our weaknesses. Singleness can be a particular weakness. There can be times that so longing for that companionship and relationship, you can be tempted as a single person to certain sins. There could be a conflict between husband and wife. And in that particular conflict, now, if it's not handled biblically and rightly, we can give Satan a foothold. And then can be a temptation. How many times are men tempted because something's not right with their wives? They're not resolving conflict biblically. And now bitterness is welling up in their hearts. And you begin to justify various thoughts or actions. It's a time of vulnerability and weakness when maybe your spouse sins against you in some way. and Instead of, again, responding to that by glorifying God and seeking the sanctification of your spouse, you're hurt, so you, you begin to, to stray and you're vulnerable. It's a time of weakness. 
So again, David should have been fulfilling his responsibilities as king of Israel. He was not. And then he's awakened at night, a vulnerable time. And both of these made him susceptible and prone to temptation. By the way, if I can just rewind a little bit and just supply this. Be careful staying up late at night. Again, I'm just giving you 25 plus years of experience as a pastor and as a man for 56 years. Those can be dangerous times. Part of our responsibilities is to be, have an ordered, disciplined life. God has called us to be orderly. A well-arranged life, again, under the vocations, responsibilities God has given to us. And part of that means that we need to rise in an appropriate time and we need to go to bed in an appropriate time. You say, well, I just can't. I know some are more prone to morning and some are more prone to, to get a second wind in the evening. But buffet your body. And bring it into subjection. Sometimes it's because we have trained our bodies to those things. Staying up and making a habit to be up late at night can be an occasion for a particular temptation. So this is the occasion for David's sin. But then notice the steps of David's sin in verses 2 to 4. And when I read verses 2 to 4, notice the verbs related to David and what he did. Notice the progression that takes place. Verse 2, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Didn't deter him. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. Notice, he saw, verse 2, he sent, he inquired, in verse 3, Verse 4, he took, and then he lay. He saw, he sent, he took, he lay. One wrong decision leads to another. One sinful decision makes it easier to make the next step. He saw. This was the birth of David's temptation. It began with his eyes. He saw. The scripture tells us he saw a woman who was very beautiful in appearance. Now this is where most sexual temptation begins. It begins with the eyes. With what we see. Or it begins with the mind. Many times because of what we see or previously have seen. So men... You know when I speak to men, I'm speaking to us all. But in particular, as I address you men, beware of the lust of the eyes. For all that is in the world, and what is in the world, what characterizes it, 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. 
What are you allowing into your mind and into your heart through your eyes? There are some things you may not be able to help. We live in a world which contains the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Everywhere we turn, it's there. So there are some things you may not be able to help, but what about those things you can help? What about those things that you can avoid entering your mind and your heart and being the birth of a temptation through the eye gate? Remember, there are some things that you can never fully erase from your memory. You may finally turn off the TV. You may finally go away from that web page. You may erase the history on your computer, delete a file, throw away a book or a magazine, but you cannot simply erase the memory of the mental pictures. That's why Psalm 119 verse 37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. That's why Job said, in Job 31, verse 1, I made, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He made a covenant not to do that. It's why Psalm 101, verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Be careful what you allow through the eye gate. David may not have been able to help what he initially saw as he was awakened from his sleep and walking on the rooftop. However, when he saw Bathsheba, he should have fled the temptation. He should have abstained. He should have gotten as far away from it as he could. He should have done what it says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. He should have turned away David should have gone immediately in his mind to the law of God that he was so familiar with. He should have been reminded. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Some of the words of Scripture that God indeed used him to write. He should have cried out for help to God. But sadly, King David not only saw, but a look became a gaze, and a gaze became a sinful desire, and then he chose to fulfill that sinful desire. He saw, he didn't flee, therefore he sent. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. We do not know exactly at this point in the narrative what was going on in David's mind, but we have a pretty good idea. And we do know from the Bible what it says about the anatomy of this type of sin and that David must have desired her beauty in his heart. So having seen her, which is the birth of the temptation, instead of fleeing, he notices her beauty, and then he goes to now desiring that beauty, and so 
What he saw, probably unplanned and unintentional, now turns to a gaze. It now turns into lust. It now turns into a sinful desire. Proverbs 6 verse 25 says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. When you're being enticed by various lusts through the eye gate, you have to deal with those lusts. Lust, epithemia, the Greek word simply means desire. If it's a sinful desire, then we need to not desire it. We, by the grace of God, do have control over, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by grace, not only what we do, but what we desire. And God is sanctifying us even down to desires. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to you, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. David now has committed sin in his heart. And instead, again, of fleeing the temptation, he gives in to his lusts. So he sent and he inquires about her. We learn from this as well. When you begin to want to know more, when you begin to satisfy your sinful curiosity, now you're in grave danger. And how quickly this can happen. Again, instead of in the moment fleeing the temptation and putting sin to death, David is now headlong on the path of sin. So it tells us he sent and inquired about a woman, about. Uh, the woman. Not knowing who she is, he, he calls someone, a servant, and says, here, go find out who this is. And one said in verse 3, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This should have been a wake-up call for King David. David knew the law of God. It had been his delight, but now he's delighting in sin. He knew what the scripture said. In Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. He knew what it said in Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He understood what was behind that, that we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. David knows that this is defrauding someone. He knows that he, if he acts upon his sinful desires now, that he will be defrauding Bathsheba. She's the daughter of someone, Eliam. She's the wife of someone, Uriah the Hittite, and it's been brought to his attention. As one commentator said, both her father, Eliam, and her husband, Uriah the Hittite, were members of David's elite bodyguard who would have endured great hardship and danger in his personal service. They're mentioned when he uh, numbers the people. They're mentioned in that list, and so we know who they are. David knew who they were. 
So the writer goes on to say, How outrageous it was, therefore, for David to extend his hand to such a woman in callous neglect of his debt of faithfulness to her men. The Lord had placed a powerful obstacle across David's path of sin, but his reckless eyes had so inflamed his unguarded lust that he forged ahead in a fiery transgression. And then the writer says this to us all. Christians bent on a course of lust who encounter similar obstacles should see the restraining hand of a gracious God and turn to him for help in breaking from sin's grip. Again, every word is inspired by God. So one says to him, doesn't matter who it is, but one says, is this not Bathsheba? Is this not the daughter of Eliam? Is this not the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so God is graciously putting in his passion an obstacle. And in God's kindness, he provides many ways of escape from temptation and sin. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. What a good and gracious God. But we must seek the way of escape. And we must avail ourselves to the goodness of God who gives us a way of escape. There are many means of grace that God gives to avert us from sin and even to divert us from temptation itself. One of which we talked about recently at the table of the Lord. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a throne of grace. We have access to the very throne room of God as believers. And we go in as children of God and we say, this is a time I need mercy, I need grace. This is a time in which I'm in need of help. But if we do not draw near to God, but instead draw near to sin then we have forsaken not only the grace of God and His provision to help in times of temptation, but we have forsaken God Himself. And we'll see that next week when we look at what David, God says to him through uh, Nathan, excuse me. We'll see that indeed he had forsaken God Himself. And so he... He saw, he may not have been able to help what he saw, but instead of fleeing it now, he begins to inquire. Now he's on the path. The lust has been conceived. Instead of fleeing and abstaining from sexual morality, here King David, it says of him in verse 4, David sent messengers and David took her. Took is a significant word here. Some see in this word took, force. What we do know is that David is abusing his power as king. And he is violating Bathsheba. David took her. 
The prophet Nathan will use that word when he tells a story to convict David of his sin. In the next chapter, when he tells that story, that parable of a man with a little ewe lamb, it says in chapter 12, verse 4, Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock. The rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took. And David is using the very words that describe what David, excuse me, Nathan is using the very words that, to describe what David did. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb. And he goes on to say in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife. And he says it again in verse 10, You have taken the wife of Uriah. And one of the judgments of God against King David, yes, judgment of God temporally in this life. In chapter 12, verse 11, I will even take your wives before your eyes. He took her. He violates her. He takes a man's precious wife. The sin is ultimately against God. When David repents, he will say, Against you and you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But that does not cancel out the fact that he has also sinned against Bathsheba, Eliam, and Uriah. He saw, he sent, he took, he lay. Verse 4, David sent messengers and David took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. The sin now is consummated. David did not flee the temptation. Sight becomes the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. He takes what is not lawfully his and he gives himself fully to his sin. What began as a simple look turns to a gaze and an inquiry and now quickly turns into full-blown sin. Let me give you some observations and some application regarding these things. Notice how quickly all of this can take place. He saw, he sent, he took, he lay. We need to be reminded how quickly we can go from sleep to temptation, from temptation to sin, from eyes to actions, from seeing to doing, from enticement of sin to the act of sin, from conception of lust to the birth of sin. It happens so quickly sometimes. James 1, 14 and 15 describes it this way. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The conception, from the conception of lust to the act of sin, the birth of that sin... It can be very short. Conception to birth, it can be very quick. 
Sin does not have a nine-month gestation period. And so we need to be warned. We're, we're understanding here. We need this warning from Scripture. We need to be warned. Flee before it's too late. But I can handle it. It doesn't affect me. Don't be foolish. Understand how quickly we can fall into heinous sin. In the words of Proverbs 7, beginning in verse 22, suddenly he follows her, the adulterous woman, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until the arrow, an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the, are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Suddenly. So notice how quickly all of this took place. Secondly, notice this is a deliberate sin on David's part. It's deliberate. Again, he saw maybe that was not deliberate. But then there is an immediate choice, immediate choice, that is then indeed deliberate. There is temptation, but then there is, what do we do with the temptation? Sometimes you may be faced with a temptation externally that's not your own. Here's the temptation. We're going to see that in the life of Joseph in Genesis 39. He has an external temptation that did not come from his own lusts. It wasn't of his own choosing. But what you do with an unsolicited temptation is a deliberate choice. Why is this important? Well, one reason is because I've observed that this is when, even in our own minds, we can begin to blame shift and not take full responsibility for our own actions. In James 1.13, some are blaming God. James has to say, no, you're enticed by your own lust. But look at the providence of God. I'm a Reformed Baptist. I believe in the sovereignty and providence of God. God has placed me here. He is leading me in temptation. Now you're you're not being sensible. This is how far we can go, even in a short period of time, and fall prey to our own foolish thinking and hearts. Now we have to take full responsibility for our sin. This is a deliberate sin on David's part. Thirdly, notice this type of sin often draws others in. David sent for others, he inquires of them, he uses them to accomplish his sin. I've often wondered what those who did David's bidding thought about the whole thing. We, we hear of one who seems to be saying, here's who it is. Maybe with the intent of saying, David, sober up here, think clearly. Maybe they feared David, their king. 
And therefore, they just did his bidding. By the way, if you know someone in sexual sin or any such sin as this, don't be afraid of the person or the consequences of confronting the person. If he will not hear you when you go to him with the word of God, don't be afraid to tell others who can then go with you to seek his repentance. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. If he listens to you, you've won your brother, but if he does not listen to you, take two, one or more One or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Those are the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid to do that. I'll talk about this a little more next week. Wives, don't let your husbands abuse their spiritual authority by shutting your mouth. If you know of their sin and you pleaded with them from the Scriptures and they won't listen... Don't let them be like King David abusing his authority to take what does not belong to him. And if you're the one in sin, don't manipulate the situation or the people around you in order to cover your sin. David did this. He used others to carry out his sin. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. It is not loving to cover up the sin of another. It is not. David's sin dishonored God. It ruined his testimony. Yet he was willing to do this great evil. And he was willing to use others to accomplish it. He believed that this sin was worth all of that in that moment. But finally, observe again who is committing this sin. This is David. King David. King David, who is described in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, as a man after God's own heart. This is King David, who wrote Psalm 42, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is David who wrote, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because of your loving kindness Or because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is King David. This is King David who was a shepherd. Who would write, the Lord is my shepherd. This is King David who would stand up for the glory of God against the Philistines and against Goliath. And now look at what he does. Do not think, men, that you cannot commit sins such as these. No matter how long you've been a Christian, 
no matter where you are in your sanctification, no matter how old or young you are, no matter how successfully you have previously turned from this sin by God's grace, do not think that you cannot commit sin such as this. Instead, watch and pray and be vigilant over your soul. And then it tells us in verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. This is one of the consequences. Bathsheba is now pregnant. Now there's a baby affected by this sin. What will David do? Sadly, he attempts to cover up his sin. And we read of David's attempted cover-up of his sin in the rest of the chapter. And in attempting to cover up his sin, his sin of sexual immorality is joined by other sins like lying and deception and even murder. He was convicted of his sin. We know this from his eventual repentance in Psalm 32 when he said, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. The hand of God was heavy upon him. He was convicted. But at this point in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, David is unrepentant and he continues down a dangerous path and the consequences were great. Next week we'll see more of the consequences of his sin, but here's a summary. There's the disciplining hand of God upon David personally. There's a child born out of his immorality and that child dies. There would be rebellion in David's family and a nation at war. May I remind you of the dangers of sin, and in particular this sin. We never sin in isolation. Some don't want to accept the consequences. I just want to move on. Why such consequences? And that's always an indication of a lack of repentance. When David repents... He speaks of the justice of God in judging. But we never sin in isolation or without consequence. Sometimes the consequences are greater than others, but there's always consequence. So we need to be warned of the danger of sexual sin. And the danger and the consequences should deter us from sin. Now, there are greater motives than that. We'll see greater motivations when we see the good and godly example of Joseph in Genesis 39. But men, don't neglect to learn from this occasion recorded for our benefit in the Scriptures in King David's life. 1 Kings 13.5 says this, 15.5. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had, not, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Men, be vigilant. Be alert. Be careful how you walk. 
men, by the grace of God, let's be godly men to the glory of our God and our Savior. One last exhortation. God is gracious to forgive our sin in Christ. But please don't turn God's grace in Christ into an excuse to sin. Instead, the goodness of God in Christ and the forgiveness of our sin through the shedding of the blood of Christ should be a deterrent from sin, not to sin. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Men, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Peter writes, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So let the gospel and let the grace of God in Christ not be an excuse to sin, but let it be that which stirs you up to not sin. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we are sobered as we read of King David, a man who so followed after you and sought you with all his heart, but yet committed such a great sin. But thank you, Father, for putting it in the Scriptures For it does teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness. Father, I pray that we might see the danger of sexual sin, the consequences of it. And it might deter us. It might cause us to live soberly sensibly and carefully as men in particular. And Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses from all unrighteousness. But Lord, I pray in light of the precious blood of Christ, may we walk carefully as men and as believers to honor and glorify you, the one who has saved us so graciously. And so, Father, I pray in particular for men in this congregation. Lord, I pray that we would not become accustomed to that which fills the world around us, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. I pray that we would not become desensitized to these things, accepting of these things, Father, I pray, as we have prayed so often before, may we be men with holy passions, holy 
desires, and even holy hatred of that which is against you, against your character, against your law. Father, may we love you. Because we love you, because you first loved us. Or may we live and walk in love as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.